pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, unless of your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, if you don't Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and making his Movies That Rock debut today um, is a friend of mine from the Hall Watchers podcast. This is Eric Layton. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Any Anytime. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I've been really interested in talking about this this film that we're going to um, be discussing today, because this is actually kind of like hot off the presses, this movie. It really <laughs> is. Yeah. A week ago as of recording this. Yeah. In case you guys didn't see, we're going to be talking about the new Woodstock 99 documentary that was just released on HBO Max. Um, I guess the official title, it's, it's part of the Music Box series which I guess is going to be an ongoing music series that HBO is going to be doing. Um, it is called Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage, which is a pretty provocative title for a pretty provocative documentary. Yeah, and what an auspicious start this uh, documentary series is off to. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> is it ever? <laughs> this is going to be it, – it, it, they set the bar pretty high with this one, I would say. The next one will be Altamont. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, before we get started with the with the movie, I want to just introduce you a little bit, Eric. Your wife Mary has been on a couple times. Um, she's the other half of the Hall Watchers podcast. Mary is the one that does all the editing and you know does all the technical stuff and really does a lot of the legwork. I, I always joke that like I'm just the on air talent. I just <laughs> sit down and sit in front of a mic. But we do both, you know. Uh, work on notes and preparations and topics for, you know, our podcast. And, you know, yeah. we just started out, we were really interested in the rock call, went to some ceremonies and we found ourselves talking about the rock call quite a bit. And the idea came up, it's like, well, why don't we maybe channel this into a podcast? Cause we figure other people may also be, be having these conversations and um, it's just gone from there. It's been a couple of years. Um, we just recorded our 70th episode. So, wow. Congratulations. Uh, That's huge. A while. Yeah. Thanks. And it's been a journey and, you know, with the rock hall, it's just with every, um, nomination, every nominee slate announcement with every induction announcement, with every uh, thing that happens there, there's never a lack of things to talk about. Mm. And for many people, there's never a lack of things to be angry about. You know, I do online. I also have uh, my blog website. It's Erocracy. And um, I would often write like rock hall predictions and that kind of thing. So it kind of grew out of that. And we just kind of I kind of pivoted over to rock, to Hall Watchers doing that podcast with Mary, and I also still write on that and continue to uh, occasionally write things about the Rock Hall and about music in general. Excellent, and I, I I'm a huge huge fan of Hall Watchers. I it's one of the the small handful of shows that is always just kind of an appointment listen for me whenever I, I see an episode drop, and it's all well, we appreciate that. Oh gosh, absolutely, we appreciate all all that you guys give give to us the listeners it's just that you guys are always very eloquent and astonishingly well researched and not to gush but but it's, it's no hey a that's fantastic great show. i fully agree with you 
<laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so we are on the same page. <laughs> and um, perfectly enough, this is actually a great segue because you guys have actually done an episode about Woodstock 99 before. Yeah, we did. Yes. Um, in a way, it was Mary's idea. I don't know if it's just repressed trauma that I didn't want to go back. <laughs> but um, yeah, we did. It was, uh, you know, uh, several months back, um, but it is out there. And, uh, you know, Mary basically just wanted to interview me about my experience there. And, you know, we did put things in a historical context as best mm -hmm. we could. Woodstock 99, it, it, it's a very complicated thing to talk about if you're talking about the historical context of everything that was going on around it. And I know we'll get into it a little more, but um, there's a, there's just a lot to dig into. Um, oh, yeah. You know, of course, everybody has the high level storyline of what happened. But if you look at um, all the different angles and all the different um all the little pieces of kindling that went into this gigantic bonfire that it ended up being and all the reasons that what happened happened. Uh, boy, is there a lot to talk about and a lot to yeah. consider, a lot to contemplate. When I first watched this movie and I first saw that, um, that this was announced and everything, he was the first person that popped into my head because Eric actually attended Woodstock 99. Yes. So, so he has quite a bit of firsthand experience about what went on and everything like that. And uh, they get into great detail in their episode on Hall Watchers, Woodstock 99 obviously was in, in you know the end of July of 1999. I remember reading so much coverage about that at the time. I wasn't, I don't even think at that point I was allowed to watch MTV. Maybe, maybe at that time the parents were just kind of starting to let me watch MTV. Yeah. How old <laughs> I, were you again? I was, I was 14. Okay, right. A little bit, you know, I was, I'm sure I was old enough at that point to watch it, but I remember being kind of scandalized by MTV, everything yeah. MTV, because just you know for that reason. But um, I do remember there being so much coverage about Woodstock 99, even, you know, leading up to it and everything like that. What made you um, interested in, in attending the festival initially? Well, in an official capacity, honestly, um, I was there to cover it for the newspaper I was working for in Los Angeles mm -hmm. at the time. It, I worked at a paper called Entertainment Today, and I was the music editor. And it came up and I was like, well, I have an opportunity. I can get press credentials and I can get press tickets and go, which means I would have to fly across the country. And my brother, Jeff, was really into it. He also lived in L.A. with me. Mm. And of course, um, we recruited I recruited one of my really good friends back in my hometown, south of Buffalo, New York. <laughs> and, Represent. Uh, yeah, exactly. Western New York is all over this. Um, I grew up south of Buffalo. Yeah, as uh, did I. <laughs> yeah. So we're <laughs> yeah. all kind of that the Southern tier, I guess we could say. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, Jeff, my brother, I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll take a red eye. We'll fly across the country. Fantastic idea, of course, right before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we also, um, like I said, I got my friend Chris and he brought, um, there was a girl he was friends with. They weren't boyfriend and girlfriend or anything, but uh, she wanted to come along. So what we did is we flew across the country on a red eye and, um, my dad actually at the time lived in Penyan, New York. And um, oh, yeah. he was kind of well situated to where we could drive from like his house up to Rome. And um, we maybe got an hour's worth of sleep <laughs> if I'm lucky. And uh, my buddy Chris and his friend Rebecca drove up to Penyan. They dropped their car and we all like hopped into a car and went out and we were because we wanted to sort of drive in sort of like super early in the morning to try to avoid mm -hmm. traffic and um but to answer your question um 
I was covering the festival as a music journalist, technically, um, but it was also kind of an excuse for my brother and I to go to Woodstock and also go with my friend Chris and, you know, his friend Rebecca. So there was like four of us. And, you know, to be honest, when I looked at the lineup, as many people did, um, there were simply a lot of acts I was interested in seeing. And if we go back a little bit further, if you think about Woodstock 94, um, that was a festival that also promoted by um, John Cher and Michael Lang, of course. But that one, by all appearances, went a lot better and was a much happier time. And it looked like, well, 94 went so well. 99 looks cool. Let's go. And, you know, they sent you the paperwork and there were these maps, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing that was deceiving about the map was all this green, right? So it looked mm-hmm. like it was all grassy and there would be shade and all these things. And, you know, come to find out, you know, we arrive on an old decommissioned Air Force base with just <laughs> miles of hot asphalt. And um, so, but to kind of stay focused on your question, um, it was, you know, an excuse to go to this festival that looked amazing. And at the same time, um, it had a double purpose of, well, I can write a story about this and cover it. Um, I actually had to go to like a hotel that was kind of outside of Rome, New York to go pick up my press credentials. And I'm not trying to be fancy or name drop here. It's just (laughs) reporting to you what happened. Um, At least, I guess, the thing too is I didn't pay any money to go. <laughs> I may be paid in Thank other God ways. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So at least didn't get any of my money, at least not for the right. tickets. It was interesting how you said that about Woodstock 94, because they definitely in the film, they do, there is a um, kind of a small segment about how, I don't want to say idyllic, but how kind of um, yeah. peaceful and, and fun loving and, and um, smooth everything went at Woodstock 94. Um, which, which was really interesting because I don't remember, it could have just been because I was much younger you know, yeah. than I was when during 99, but I don't remember that one being covered quite as much as 99 in the press. And I also remember too, with 99, for some reason, the six in my head, they were kind of making it a big deal that it was like the 30th anniversary, 30th anniversary. It was like really yeah, um, a big part of, of their promotion for that festival. Yeah, it was, you know, the 94-99 comparison is interesting because 94 was in Saugerties, New York, at a place called Winston Farm. And Mm. it just looked like there were more trees, there was more green space. You saw people rolling around in the mud, which was actually mud. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the documentary uh, that just aired on HBO that we're talking about, they, um, yeah, you're right, they painted it in this very you know, positive light. You see Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries singing and it's like, oh, the Cranberries, 1994, right. what a great vibe. And then they show kind of the more, you know, uh, edgy stuff. And, you know, you see images of uh, Green Day got in this big mud fight with the audience right. and it was this goofy thing and everybody remembers. Yeah. And, you know, and of the thing about- Reznor, the classic, you yes, know, yeah. him, all mud soaked. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that was my next point. Like, mm. 94 is held in such high regard that when Nine Inch Nails got into the Rock Hall at the museum, they had mm. a museum exhibit that was like a mannequin that represented Trent covered no in mud. So the uh, the Rock Hall exhibit for the inductees when Nine Inch Nails got in, basically the Nine Inch Nails exhibit was like Woodstock 94 heavily figured in because it's widely considered one of Nine Inch Nails' most memorable gigs. Ah, that's like very true. Trent yep. and his band went and rolled around in the mud before they went on stage. And that's, that's one crazy. of the hallmarks of Woodstock 94. Mm-hmm. Now, there are no such 
warmly remembered hallmarks from Woodstock 99. No. But you really get a sense of the difference and the contrast between the two. And this was only five years apart. So yeah. it's interesting to see, you know, how much differently the two festivals operated. And I think a lot of that, and we'll surely get into this a little more, but I think it was about the location. I mean, I think this mm-hmm. uh, location that they had it in in 94 was much more hospitable. Now, I don't want to paint 94 as without problems. I know two people did die um, as a result of going to the Woodstock 94 festival. Um, a lot of gate crashing went on. In fact, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons they had Woodstock 99 at the Air Force Base was because it was fortified and there were walls and it was kind of easier to keep people, or so they thought, uh, right. keep people from breaking down the fence and getting in. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, you know, Woodstock 99, uh, people were breaking the walls to get out and not in, right, which is right. really something. Uh, it's so, very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. So it's an interesting contrast, 94 and 99. And um, I kind of used 94 and all the things that I learned about it, seeing it on MTV and, you know, all that, all that stuff I was just talking about. It's like, well, 94 seemed to go fairly well. I knew it was going to be crazy. You're not going to go to a festival that has a couple hundred thousand people or more and not have some craziness. But when you're in your twenties, right. you're willing to do that. Right. Right. That's almost, it's almost like a rite of passage in a way to kind of yeah. go to your first music festival and, you yeah. know. At least in as of like, you know, of a certain generation, it is anyway. Yeah, and absolutely. It, it was really the start of like a huge what would become like a big festival generation, because then you had like the Coachella's and the Bonnaroo's right. that would happen year after year after year um, that went so much smoother than Woodstock 99 was. It's almost like yeah. 99 was like needed to kind of get the growing pains out before people figured out, oh, this is how you're supposed to do it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as a cautionary tale, you, you couldn't hit you know, you couldn't be more on target with that. Mm. And certainly Coachella 99, I actually went to that too. So I was able to, yeah. And I was able to really live those two experiences. And yeah, when you walked into Coachella 99, um, you were handed a bottle of water. There was (laughs) grass, there were palm trees visible. Um, You were out in like India, which is near Palm Springs. And Um, there are all these stages and art installations and all this um, great music um, that seemed to be a little bit maybe more tasteful and maybe more intelligent in many cases. You know, there was this, you know, progressive like hip hop act called Jurassic five. Oh Um, yeah. I think pavement played and uh, I know Bjork was on the bill and people like this. And one of the stories I've told a few times, people might be tired of hearing me talk about it, but um, maybe not. Maybe this is the first time people have heard me ever talk. But um, I remember going in um, on Sunday morning at Coachella in 99 and like Gil Scott Heron was playing at a small Whoa. stage and it was one of the coolest things I ever saw. So it was like that kind of thing. Wow. And that's not to say that Woodstock 99 didn't try to have um acts like that certainly mm-hmm. there were jam bands and there were like los lobos played and like mickey hart from oh, the wow. grateful dead had planet drum and there was that jam band mo so there mm-hmm. were other things that they were trying i think one of the cornerstone words for what stuck nine is like i was really trying to have a good time and i think 
they tried to do something and of course failed spectacularly. And I'm not letting the promoters off the hook. I'll have plenty more to say about them as we go, but (laughs) you're right about the festival culture and like, yeah, Woodstock 99 being something that was an example of like what not to do. But again, I think it boils down to audience comfort, the location that you're having something in and what festivals have become about Josh is quote unquote, the the experience right it's not about just going in and packing in like sardines and being caught in a mosh pit and being dehydrated and sunburned for three days it's more about you go to coachella now coachella 99 lost money because uh i think they were just getting going and i don't think they um you know, necessarily budgeted or, you know, it wasn't the success financially they thought it would be. So they actually took a year off in Hmm. 2000 and then it came back in 2001 as a one day event. But if you see what happened with Coachella, that it went on and it's about to celebrate, it's like 22nd anniversary or whatever. Um, it, it built this brand and it certainly has had, um, you know, longevity and huge success as a global music festival that people would want to go to. Um, Woodstock, not so much. It's almost to the point where it become almost like an urban legend in some ways, you know, like, yeah. like it's like some pe- people were like, did it actually happen? You know, Right. Um, all yeah. for all three of the, the, the events really. Yeah. It was so like, it's just become so deeply mythologized in, 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 yeah, in and so many ways. Certainly, you know, idealized too, because every single one of them did have their problems. Right. Right. You're getting a representative sampling of like amazing musical moments and you have the luxury of not having had to like sit there and be there. And like, I think like didn't Jimi Hendrix go on at like six in the morning as the sun was coming up? You know, it's like that kind of thing. Like you weren't up all night fried on LSD and then, you know, (laughs) you didn't have the inconvenience of like uh, necessarily uh, experiencing the whole thing. And I'm sure a lot of people that saw the documentary actually did go to Woodstock and you know, had did have the experience, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the film maybe omits all the uh, uglier parts of the experience that may or may not have existed. Um, but yeah, um, everybody has this, you know, peace and love sort of perception of what Woodstock in 1969 was. And of course, um, there were a lot of problems there too. You know, they basically, you know, the gates came down and I think they basically just let everybody come, come in, you know, it was originally like a ticketed event and then they just gave up because so many people showed up, you know, people abandoning their car on the side of the road and walking miles and miles to get to this thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a, you know, as a youth culture moment and as a moment in the sixties, you know, there's not much you can like compare it to because it was, you know, hugely important. And if you look at the artists that played it in the you know perspective of rock and roll it is hugely important if you look at the performances that happen but right. you're and, you're absolutely right that it probably maybe sometimes a, a movie like obscures what the actual experience was now with this Woodstock 99 documentary it seems like it's the you know that's completely inverted it's the opposite yes. <laughs> they're showing you yep. um they're showing you like the all the bad stuff and you know the the director uh, Garrett Price at the beginning He was like, you know, I could have framed this as like a comedy if you look at like what was going on in the culture in the 90s that you could almost like make fun of. But as it turns out, it plays more like a horror film. But at the same time, 
so many people, and I know that I share this story because, um, you know, unfortunately this guy, um, David, whose friend also named David, David Roja, who died, um, you know, his experience and his intent was very, very close to mine. Um, this guy, David, uh, Vodnes, who, uh, mm-hmm. talks about his friend and re- and they talk about his journal and how his friend just wanted to be in the pit at Metallica and everything that happened right. there. That was maybe but, like the most, what, that was one of the most harrowing parts of the movie. Yeah. And, you know, when the guy was talking about, you know, I wasn't really sure, you know, if I was going to go or not, but, you know, my buddy David wanted to go and then my younger brother was going to go and his girlfriend and like, there was like a group of five of them and they wanted to go to Woodstock. And to me, it, it kind of just resonated on that level, just in terms of intention. Mm -hmm. Um, The intention was, wow, this thing looks amazing. It's going to be wild and crazy but you're going to go and you're going to do your damnedest to have the time of your life. And as the weekend unfolded, um, (laughs) you're trying to make fetch happen, right? (laughs) You're trying to like, you're like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show party down, but like Adam Scott is like this actor who's now a caterer, but he was in a commercial and like his catchphrase that everybody makes him say is, are we having fun yet? (laughs) So it's, it was kind of like that. Um, you know, you're there and you're like, are we having fun yet? It's like, it's like, we're going to have fun whether we have fun or not. Yeah. You keep running into obstacle after obstacle and thing after thing kept happening. And, you know, so many, and I want to say like the vast majority of people with the exception of, you know, all the vile knuckleheads that, you know, (laughs) assaulted women and burned things down, Mm. um, but I would say the vast majority of people that went to this thing were not unlike me and my friends. They were not unlike David DeRosia and his friends. They were just trying to go to this event and have a good time. That was their only intention. Um, there were a lot of bands they liked. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted to go see Metallica and there were other bands they were interested in. It was kind of, you know, why do you go to a music festival to go have a good time? I mean, you go with right. your friends and like you said, it's a rite of passage and um, on that level, like I did sort of relate to that. Fortunately for me and my friends and my brother, we, uh, you know, we got out of there safe and alive, maybe sunburnt <laughs> and a bit traumatized by the whole thing on certain levels. Let's just get right into it and talk about your experience once you were actually there. And I'm sure most of the people listening have watched the movie and have seen it's a pretty raw documentary. They don't really hold anything back. The, the yeah. dehydration, the 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 uh, the sewage problems, the yeah. uh, lack of facilities, the um, just the the almost animalistic behavior of a lot of the people there. You know, um, you know, for a, a whole plethora of reasons. Um, so I, I, this is where I'm, I'm kind of curious into, into some of the, you know, the things that you experienced firsthand, how closely they resembled what you went through. Yeah. Um, where to start? I mean, oh, basically, <laughs> you know, we drove in, dealt with some really bad traffic. We got out, got our tent, had to find a uh, open spot on this campground. It was kind of between the two stages. We actually were able to oh, set wow. up on some kind of like, dried grass so we weren't Mm. actually camping on asphalt or 
pizza boxes or wood chips like a lot of right. people were. <laughs> oh. We were able to set up the tent. Sadly, we didn't put an identifying like flag on our tent. So when I went later on Friday night to try to find the tent, I could not find it and thought somebody had ripped it down and oh, there was no place no. to sleep. But luckily, I did eventually find it. But so we get in there, we get set up and it's like, OK, none of us had really slept in like 24 hours, probably. <laughs> but again, oh when you're in your imagine. 20s, you're kind of like whatever we're just we're at woodstock we're gonna go i'll just drink some soda get some caffeine going and, <laughs> right. you know we'll make Soldier this happen. <laughs> um when the one thing i want to you know you know distinguish about you know friday versus like saturday and I, i'll friday like things were bad and they were getting worse as the day went on but saturday was probably like even worse. Uh, oh, wow. But Friday, there was still a lot of hope in the air. There was still a lot of hope that this thing was going to be great. And certainly when you first get to something like this, you're excited. You want it to happen correctly. Mm-hmm. You 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 want to get in there. So we got in. And honestly, Josh, the first thing we did was we walked to um, the East stage because James Brown was kicking off the show. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe that you were yeah. in the crowd for James Brown. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think I saw really... you in the movie in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> if you did, you'll have to catch a freeze frame and send me an image. Okay. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it was great. Um, you know, it was it was kind of a weird vibe because um, I don't know if you remember this, but John F. Kennedy Kennedy Jr.'s plane had crashed. I think they had oh, yes. just basically like found the wreckage and had confirmed everything and that he had died and all that like the day before. And I remember uh, James Brown addressing that, uh, addressing mm-hmm. the Kennedy family and saying some kind of condolence from the stage, which, you know, so that was wow. kind of this weird thing that had happened right before Woodstock right. had, uh, you know, open. But we we kind of pinged around. We went and saw James Brown and that was incredible. It was like, okay, we're off to a pretty good start. It was very hot, but, you know, you're just dealing with it. And we walked over to the West stage to see this, uh, it's this jam band Mo. They're actually from Buffalo. Maybe you've yeah. heard of them, but mm-hmm. um, absolutely. So we're like, we're just kind of pinging back and forth, trying to see the acts that we wanted to see. You know, there were other things set up at the festival. They had the emerging artist stage. They had this independent film channel, like no movie kidding. festival going on. You want to talk about throwing pearls before swine? I know that people mainly went into those places just to get some shade, as it turns out. But it's sure. like. I mean, it's nice that they aspired that the independent film channel was going to be, you know, what were they showing? You know, you know, these independent movies. I mean, talk about the wrong crowd, probably. (laughs) Is it, you know, I mean, I'm sure maybe some people would have appreciated that, but it just seemed like a strange environment to try to. (laughs) After I watch this Harmony Korean movie, I'm going to watch it. (laughs) Unless they were showing Gummo, I'm not sure that it really would have, uh, you know, spoke to this audience. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know that watching, you know, independent art movies was on the agenda for a lot of the people at Woodstock. I mean, I think what quickly became uh, the priority for everybody was hydration and survival. (laughs) And um, as time went on, and like I said, we were trying to make the best of it. Um, We went over, we watched Mo. I think we took our breaks and we did find a beer garden. Oh. And, um, you know, there's a photo of me and my friends and I'm holding the beer and we're just trying to be like, yeah, we're having fun. Right. Right. <laughs> we're trying to I have just fun. Have this, this vision of like almost like one of those like funny postcards, like the humorous postcards where like, yeah. there's like a group of you sitting 
in like amidst this pandemonium holding a beer like forcing yourself to smile like having fun yet like you said the adam <laughs> scott quote like this just this this image is very vivid exactly. in my head right now <laughs> yeah um and like i said i think that we were among many people and maybe the vast majority of the crowd we were just trying to have fun and see the bands yeah. we wanted to see you know when we first walked in there was trash all over the place i'm like how is this place trash already on the first day because they had this pre-festival on thursday and bands actually played but it wasn't like the official start i know that like g love and special sauce and i think george clinton and people like that there was like this warm-up thing that happened thursday but where was the staff and where was the maintenance and where was the care for the audience experience if i'm walking onto this thing (laughs) on friday at 11 12 in the morning um, driving all, you know, traveling all night, driving all right. night, getting in there, setting up a tent, you know, it's late morning. We're talking 11, 12 lunchtime. We were trying to walk to go see James Brown. And there's like, I kid you not, there's like overflowing trash cans. And there was literally, um, that's ridiculous. A peace sign, a huge peace sign made out of empty pizza, pizza boxes, like <laughs> made out of trash. And it's like, okay, that's kind of, that's kind of bad, but you know, maybe they right. just need to kind of get through, you know, you just expect that. Okay. Right. They just, you know, the people that clean that up haven't come through quite yet and they'll eventually do that. Right. I guess it's and, still like, it comes off as like incredibly poor management skills to like on the first, like you want people to be welcome to your festival yeah. and you don't even bother to clean up the garbage. Like, yeah, I don't know what Lang and Cher were thinking. This was not a set it and forget it kind of situation. This was a dynamic situation where you had 220,000 plus people coming in and out. So did you just think you really didn't need to clean up and have a regular? I mean, you can go to a county fair and see much, oh, yeah. much better um, like sanitation and you know mm-hmm. care to the property. And yeah. So yeah. when we first got on there, we, you know, the, the, the venue seemed like it was already a mess, like right Jeez. from the get. And we, you know, we took our breaks, we're trying to have fun and, you know, we decided, okay, we're going to get back over to the West stage because there were bands that we wanted, or I'm sorry, the East stage. Um, there were bands that we wanted to see. So we kind of made our way over and, um, I, I'm trying to remember exactly who all we saw. I know that we probably caught some of the band live, um, mm. There might have been a little, we might have watched a little bit of Cheryl Crow, but, and I know we were kind of going back and forth, but we did see DMX. Um, I do vividly remember DMX performing and I guess, you know, that was the biggest show he ever played, you know, may he rest. He just passed away. Um, We did um, watch the offspring and we did watch corn and uh, my buddy Chris was like the biggest corn fan in the world. And I think that was one of the (laughs) things that sold him on going to Woodstock. Um, you know, I'm kind of getting into the artists and I'm jumping ahead to Friday night here, but, Mm -hmm. um, we were on the periphery because, you know, we did the best we could to get the best view we could. They did have like screens, but we got as close as we could, but you know, we were still on the outside margins of the crowd Mm -hmm. because as you see in the documentary, Um, It was just this roiling pit. Like, I don't even know how you would have gotten up closer. I mean, you would have had to just like really just squeezed yourself through thousands of people. Getting out was fine if you're trying to leave, maybe. (laughs) 
<laughs> but getting in to like get like oh you want to get close to the stage i mean we got as close as we could but being on that outside periphery when corn took the stage oh, um wow. seeing that and you see it in the documentary and just witnessing that that was one of the just most insane things i've ever witnessed on the level of like humanity just the way it just exploded and this wave of people just started roiling and just headbanging and thrashing around and uh you know, as far as corn is concerned, I imagine that that was probably one of their most memorable gigs and probably one of the most intense performance performances Jonathan Davis ever got. Um, yeah. I know that you know, about they, how he, yeah, the, uh, when he got finished the performance, he immediately like they hooked him up to an IV and mm -hmm. like drug right because he was gonna he was about to pass out. Yeah, it was so in intense. Yeah, I think he had a mind left his body sort of moment um when he played and the yeah they threw ice on him and put him on an iv i guess he was in pretty rough shape and collapsed after that and i'm not at all surprised wow. and uh yeah it's pretty chilling seeing that it, just even on my tv screen you know just because i i couldn't even wrap my head around being in an environment like that it just yeah yeah and i i don't know that i recommend it Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um Again, Friday, you know, things were still kind of from what we thought anyway. I know really bad stuff happened, um, you know, all weekend when we were there. But w another point the documentary makes, um, and I want to contrast this against like the fire festival because there were a couple mm. of fire festival documentaries, right? No one had a cell phone, right? Right. We weren't in the smartphone era. There might have been some people that might have had some early flip phones or stuff like that, right. but there were Pocket no cell pagers. phones. Yeah, exactly. In 1999, yep. it was not commonplace. You know, when you watch this footage, you do not see people holding their phones up, recording the whole thing and thereby not right. experiencing it with their own eyes. Right. Yeah, um, it's true. But I think if smartphones had been around, they would have shut down Woodstock 99. I think it would have oh, just, yeah. I think all the horrible stuff that went down um, would have been reported. I think there'd have been photos. I think there would have been pictures taken of perpetrators and put out there. And I think that if um, smartphones had been around, I think that the world would have been made aware of what was going on. That's I mean, you really saw what point. happened with like Firefest and like people immediately knew that it was a disaster in real time. Right. But, you know, I learned so much about all the negative stuff that happened, you know, afterwards. Um, and you know, I, there, you, you kind of have this sort of guilty feeling like, okay, I went to this thing. I was just trying to have fun. And as it turns out, you know, there were four rapes, probably more. That was just what was reported. And there was like untold numbers of sexual assaults. And, you know, there were times we were walking around and you could see people encircling other people. Like there were these circles where something was going on in the middle. And I don't know if women were, you know, burying their chests or what was going on, but you got the sense there was just something going on that wasn't kosher. And, right. you know, when you watch the documentary, you really do see, you know, the extent of it. Um, you would see, I, I saw people passed out on the tarmac heat stroke and you know people park you know trying to lay under the semis and uh just to get shade anywhere they could because there was just no shade anywhere so that's why a lot of people went into like the hangars for like the emerging artist stage or they went into the you know the independent film festival right, area right. or whatever it was but 
Um, wow. I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but in terms of my experience, you know, that was kind of like Friday. Um, that's my, just day one. Like, yeah, that's day one. I watched a little bit of Bush and my buddy Chris stayed behind and I just, I was so tired. It's like, I've got to go back to the tent. And that's when I tried to go back to the tent and it took me forever to find it. I almost oh, didn't that, find yes. the tent. Oh and, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, and then, yeah, that takes us into Saturday, but. So um, I, I just want to want to want to just pause for one second just sure. to mention as you're explaining how that was just the first day. So yeah. if you, if you think about like just the, the just the, the astonishing level of insanity that was happening just on the first day, and think about how that would magnify with each subsequent day. So by the time and I and I know you you left you were not there for Sunday, correct? It, it, right, yeah. Right. Um we made the decision on Sunday morning to get out of there after Saturday we'd had enough and you know Josh, I'm really happy we did. You know, my yeah. brother was the first one to broach should we just leave. Mm -hmm. The conditions were so bad. I mean, every porta potty was a nightmare. Um mm -hmm. you know, the food like how many burritos and pizzas, I mean, like how many sausage sandwiches can one eat? Like there was just, the food was very redundant. Before your gut starts to yeah. explode. And, but I mean, it was more than that. We were just like sunburned and exhausted and mm -hmm. we just, you know, we were like, yeah, you know what? You know, another day of this would be too much. And we, we had seen enough and in hindsight, you know, it's interesting in the, uh, the documentary because Stephen Hyden's like, he, he's like, I don't know why anybody would have stayed for Sunday. It's like this collective right. psychosis. Yes. And it's like, you know, he brings up such a great point because it's like, yeah, we didn't stay. We were like, to like, what were we going to do? Right. And if you look at like the Sunday stuff, I think they were trying to be all mellow and like, you know, kind of appropriate to Sunday, like Al Green, like started the That's day apparently. Not, and yes. And Jewel yeah, and I think Willie Nelson was there and, you know, like wow. Sunday and stuff, but we were like, you know, we, do we really want to hang out for, four, you know, 13, right. 14 hours to see the chili peppers? And right. we were, you know, I think you just, we just reached a stopping point. We were just hitting a wall and, um, you know, and it's funny because my friend, Chris's, my, uh, friend, Rebecca, she actually, um, got out of there Saturday night after Metallica, there were no these kidding. shuttle buses that were taking people back to parking and stuff. So she cleared out. So it's like, and then there were three, it was just, uh, me, my brother, Jeff and my buddy, Chris. And we're like, yeah, we can just go. Yeah. So I was not there for Sunday. I was not there for the fires, the looting and the riding. But what I will say, um, is I could see the seams starting to burst. They were starting to tear down that outside perimeter fence. Um, things were starting to get ugly even Sunday morning. And, you know, wow. I was relieved to have gotten out of there. I have to echo her son. You're not, it wasn't, no, it was his sentiment in the movie. Like you said, that it was surprised more people didn't leave because it's right. And I'm sure a lot of people did, but there was still a lot of people that stayed I mean, right. I guess if you pay whatever you pay to get in 150 bucks or whatever it was for right. the three days, you know, uh, you want to get your money's worth, I guess. Uh, I, guess. I, you know, I yeah. don't know. I think this thing was still going on and it was always planned to go through Sunday night. So I guess people thought, all right, let's just soldier on. But it really wow. makes you wonder like why, I mean, when you look at some of the footage that they show in this documentary and they talk about, it looks like a refugee camp, you know, there's water yeah. all over the place and all these tents and it was just filthy. And 
of course, the porta potties were leaking, and you know people were walling around in this um, combination of you know mud and human waste, and um, it was just not, you know, at, at age, you know, in my twenties, I was you know twenty seven years old, you know, I was willing to put up with a certain level of discomfort and lack of sleep, and you know, eating crappy food, and maybe you know being in the heat and in, in the sun all day, but we had just kind of hit our limit and we're like, yeah, let's just go. And I always tell a funny story because we got on the, you know, the, the New York state Thruway after we left and we stopped at this rest stop. Right. And, mm. you know, it was just one of these very mundane kind of McDonald's based rest stops. And it's like, you know, <laughs> any normal day you'd be like, whatever, it's like a McDonald's rest stop. Let's maybe try to find something better. But we stopped and like went into the restroom at this red at this rest stop and we were never so happy to see <laughs> running water you would not believe after wow. being at woodstock like it was like you know they there's this cliche don't take all all the things you have for granted and you know you do take yeah. running water for granted you do take flushing toilets for granted mm -hmm. when you go to a place and you're somewhere for 48 hours like we were where it was just absolutely just these unsanitary, atrocious conditions. Um, you know, if you can't really have a environment where you can like, feel like you can go to the bathroom without being like, like, like gagging, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, we were kind of suffering a little bit in a certain kind of, um, you know, creature comfort sort of way, but also, sure. you know, we had seen a lot in two days and, yeah we were just burnt. It's like, yeah, that's not a bad idea. So we, it almost sounds like you're like coming home from like fighting a war almost the way you're describing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Right. Right. This might be jumping the gun a little bit and yeah. also maybe making a, 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 a kind of a bold conclusion about the whole thing. Um, but kind of taking in all, all these, all these stories and, and everything that I, that I, I saw in, in the film and everything, it, I'm, I'm really getting the impression especially compared to the first two Woodstocks, I'm getting the impression that this one in particular seems to have been more of a, like a product or, or like a brand more so than actually being a legitimate music festival. It's right. almost more like the, the people who are there, the spectators and the attendees were seen more as just numbers, you know, right. and, and profit figures versus you know actual oh let's make sure that we give the people what they want it, it's right. almost like the attendees were more like an afterthought for the for for the people who were running the entire festival to kind of just you know no you're absolutely correct i mean mm -hmm. you know if lang and Cher surveyed that audience and all they saw were little dollar signs on our faces i wouldn't be surprised um yeah yeah there was no thought for the people that were attending this thing there was no thought to the consumer experience at all. Like I said, um, a festival with this many people going in and out of it and moving around, um, mm -hmm. you know, the stages were nearly two miles apart. It was a long Jeez, hike. And, serious? you know, you have to remember oh, like God. the temperature out there, it was like a hundred degrees and, mm -hmm. you know, then bottles of water were $4. So if you were dehydrated and then like you saw the lines in the uh, documentary for the ATM, you know, if you needed cash, right. you had to wait. And yeah, they had these pipes that were supposedly, you know, uh, that would dispense potable water, but, um, 
there were, you know, people breaking into the lines and there were people bathing in these basins where you were supposed to be able to get water. And <laughs> it just became this completely uh, un- unsanitary situation to get water if you wanted to get it for free. And yeah, there was, you know, there was no regard for the people that were attending this thing. I mean, let's talk about, Mm -hmm. they had this volunteer security crew that most of them like gave up and didn't care. Like they turned their shirts inside out or hid their credential and just disappeared in the crowd. And, you know, I just think there was a lack of organization. And what really galls me is when you see these press conferences that John Shearer and Michael Langer happen and they're just so... Mm -hmm belligerent and in denial of the reality on the ground. They're like army generals that, yeah. Yeah. And were you not walking around? I mean, they had every resource at their disposal to come in and ease the pain of everybody that was attending this thing. And, you know, honestly, Josh, you know who Ling and Cher were? They were both the mayors from Jaws. Oh my God. Yes. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yep. The yep, beach will 100%. be open, no regard to safety. Yeah, there's a shark out there or whatever. But right. they're both the mayors from Jaws, man. Mm-hmm. You know? And and in, the, in particular, there are many like... yeah, there are just many ways that the baby boomer generation failed Generation X, and this is just an ex- one example of how right. they failed failed. Absolutely. Us. And and Michael Lang in particular, like I was really surprised by this because i mean he he was the founder of the original woodstock and right. um and it's almost like he, now he's just like kind of riding his own coattails by the time we get to woodstock 99 he's like oh you know i did it twice i can do it again i don't really right. have to put a lot of thought or effort into this so yeah. it, that's kind of the impression i got but to the point of where like you're depriving people of like basic human needs right you know, water, sanitation, yeah, bathrooms. Mm -hmm. I just think that there's so many things that could have been done. Like I said, I think they had the resources and the money at their disposal. Um, yeah. After what they saw on Friday and what they saw, they could have, you know, okay, there's like all these pipes leaking. There's like mud. They could have called some local landscaping or highway department to come and like pour like wood chips or sand over the you know water. They could have fenced things off and improved the conditions in real time. They could have said, you know what, we're making water free the rest of the weekend. Go to any concession stand and you will be handed a bottle of water if you need it. Or they could have rolled up some trucks at three or four different spots on the site and just had free water just come and get the bottles of water and i think that could have easily been um one thing that might have improved the conditions on the ground for people and the people that were attending um that's just a few things there's many many things they could have done i think sure. you know you think about the lineup and i know we'll get to the saturday night disaster where they had like limp biscuit rage against the machine and metallica is <laughs> like yeah. a triple punch um you wonder what Saturday would have looked like, or if they could have lowered the temperature. Like, I mean, I don't know to me, like Dave Matthews band and Alanis Morissette were both huge, huge artists. I feel like either one of them could have headlined, you know, they could have maybe had Limp Biscuit, and then maybe they could have had like Alanis or Dave Matthews instead of having this triple punch of this, you know, you know, rap rock, basically new metal, what have you heavy metal and Metallica, of course, but right. Um, 
if they could have maybe mixed up the programming and just had different acts, I mean, it's already bizarre enough that Limp Bizkit went on after Alanis Morissette, right? <laughs> right. Yes, yes. And, true. you know, we watched all this. I mean, you know, okay, it's it's there's a variety of music going on here, but right. what if uh, Rage Against the Machine played Sunday instead? What if they had had Alanis or Dave Matthews or Counting Crows in that slot and then mm-hmm. just had Metallica headline? Maybe they could have lowered the temperature a little bit. Maybe right. they could have put Dave Matthews Band as the headliner. I mean, Dave Matthews Band is huge. Sure. You know, and they could have maybe even taken some of these artists, like they could have put Rage or Limp Biscuit or Metallica, like maybe on the other stage. Um, yeah, on the other true. side, you know, I think that was a kind of a smaller stage, but still they could have done something. They really could have juggled some things right. and they could have made some real time adjustments. I think in terms of just the experience, they could have brought in more, maybe they could have brought in more porta potties. Maybe they could have just, but it just seems like they set this thing up and they just let it be. It was like this mm-hmm. thing that they just sort of abandoned. I didn't get a sense in that documentary from Lang or Scherer that they took any kind of real active participation in like seeing the conditions on the ground and taking any steps to correct it. And you see it and you hear it from the journalists and their voices and the people that are interviewing them. They're like, are you guys aware that all this horrible stuff's going on? And, you know, they want to blame it on MTV. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. They want to blame it on MTV. Oh, you know, they're vilifying us. And like, well, MTV was your partner because they did a pay-per-view and you wanted MTV there covering it because this was, you know, the entire arrangement that you signed up for. But you just, I mean, hindsight's 2020, right? But I cannot believe it's just, it's almost like they were in denial. And again, uh, the mayor's from Jaws, Josh. 100%. Yep, just complete refusal to take any kind of responsibility. It's, it's um, like you said, it's MTV's fault. It's Limp Biscuit's fault. It's right. um, the women's fault for walking around without clothes right. on. The, the, and, and the line that just kind of like crushed my soul into a thousand pieces was when he goes, it, when he said something to the effect of, um, if you ask any of the overwhelming majority of people there had a great time. Right. Which, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, could, I, mean, I think I there might be, be true, some people but... that will claim they had a good time. And right. I think if you look at message boards, some people claim they did. You know, right. I wouldn't personally claim that I had a great time. I had a memorable time just because of what happened in front of my right. eyes. But right. when I talk to my brother or my buddy Chris about it, we just shake our heads. It's like, can you believe that? Can right. you believe all that? you know, went down? Right. Can you believe we were there? And how insane was that? Just like. And I joke with Chris because, you know, Lang was trying to get 2019 going as like the 50th. And and obviously that fell apart. And I don't know, his license to throw a music festival should have been permanently revoked after Woodstock 99. It's like how soon we forget, you know, talk about people, you know, the, you know, those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. Right. Yep. And I just, they should not let that guy throw another festival after what happened at Woodstock 99. And you're absolutely right. John shares comments about, you know, somehow um, the girls and the women were to blame for walking around naked is just a deplorable comment. It's abominable. And, you know, like Dexter Holland, I mean, unlike talk about unlikely voice of reason, (laughs) 
right? Dexter Holland, the singer of the Seriously. offspring. You know, yeah. he's calling out. It's like it would be nice if the girls could like crowd surf without a bunch of uh, a holes groping them. Basically, right. yeah. It's like you know, <laughs> knock that off, and you could even see like. Uh, they, you know, the MTV coverage or the pay-per-view coverage, like the cameras were pointing at the audience and, you know, they were just filming all the girls. It was like a girls gone wild type dynamic or something. Yeah. And you could see that the singer Jamiroquai was kind of irritated. It's like, all you're doing is filming these naked girls. It's like, can you show something else? Can you film the band? Right. <laughs> you know, right. You just, why are we here right now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's really interesting about this as a festival on one level is like, you see just the dismay um, in the interviews uh, with people like Cheryl Crow and Jewel and after the fact, and the two guys, uh, Dexter Holland and Noodles from Offspring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and even, also, even Jonathan Davis. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, Corn gets lumped in and, you know, with the new metal thing. And I, I think they're one of the better artists in that group or in that genre. Mm -hmm. And I think Jonathan Davis, you know, he's obviously had his issues and yeah, you know, he's unloaded a lot of childhood trauma on record, right? (laughs) That's for Um, sure. (laughs) Certainly. um, But, you know, there's something authentic to what he does and, you know, say what you want about corn, but they're a huge band. I think they're about to go out there and do a big tour. I mean, talk about longevity and the band that has their fans, that's and, true. you know, listening yep. to him interviewed in this documentary, he was absolutely right about everything. I mean, he, yeah. it, you know, when he talks about it's like, you know, he, he saw just the waves of people and like how there was like that delay. So the first group would like move and then the second group would move because of the way sound travels. I just think <laughs> yes, he was so yeah. blown away by the whole scene, like all he could do in response was to turn in the performance of his lifetime and just tear himself apart, you know, and. Mm-hmm. You know, as an artist, um, any artist probably wants to give their all, uh, you know, for their audience, you know, in a perfect world. And you can't say that he didn't give his all. But, you know, his comments and the things that he said, I mean, um, you know, he was an associate of Fred Durst and Limbiscuit. Certainly they had the Family Values Tour in 99. I mean, it wasn't like they, they weren't like associated yeah. It doesn't mean that Jonathan Davis saw things the way that Fred Durst saw them. I mean, I right. think especially as the years have gone on, mm-hmm. um, you know, look, uh, a lot of these, you know, heavy metal guys, hard rock guys, new metal, whatever you want to call it, you know, I think they get kind of unfairly uh, maligned as like, you know, not very intelligent. But as it turns out, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are a lot smarter and more worldly and um, a lot more yeah. like sensitive and compassionate maybe than you would give them credit for like even like dave mustaine from megadeth um yeah yeah it's very really very erudite in this yeah so yeah um yeah jonathan davis a voice of reason in this uh dexter holland as well and you know when they talk to like jewel and cheryl crow i think they use some kind of archival I don't think Cheryl participated in this directly for like a recent no. interview, but no, yeah, but you could but, see the irritation in her face when she's like, yeah. "Yeah, it's a lot of." She said some like a lot of upper middle class suburban kids who are angry for some reason that nobody knows, or is it something right. to that effect? Yeah, yeah, and I think you know there's something to that, and I mean, 
you know, the anger thing and why were these guys, these, you know, guys angry, you know, why was, you know, why did this thing turn into this completely toxic, ugly frat party? I mean, yeah, you know, that kind of ugliness, I think, exists outside of Woodstock 99. I mean, I think Woodstock For 99 sure. was like the pressure cooker that brought all these things up to the fore. And, you know, there's a very complicated and nuanced conversation to, to be had about why was a 24 year old, um, you know, white male mad in 1999. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a big chain of events and a lot of individual things that you could look at. Um, but speaking for myself, uh, you know, me and my friends, we weren't inclined to be destructive. We weren't inclined to do anything negative. I think we each had a couple of beers, you know, it's not like we were out there doing drugs or wilding out. Right. Um, but there certainly was an element. And I think when you get into that mob mentality and this kind of, uh, situation where people are deprived of their basic needs and they just become animalistic. And I think you get, thousands of just hormonal 22 to 25 year olds together Mm -hmm. in a situation like that. And you add aggressive rock music or metal music or, you know, what we saw Saturday night with that trifecta of Limp Bizkit, Rage Against the Machine and Metallica. Can we be surprised that what happened happened? Right. It's like this big Lord of the Flies kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, that That's just, a great way to put it. Because, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this before I had any kind of nuanced understanding of, of the whole, you know, scene. Is It's very easy to associate. I mean, like you said, Cheryl Crow definitely has a point. She's onto something. But if you if you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit from that, like there's so much more going on as far as the the violence in the country at the time like you had um columbine had just taken place you had right. things like matthew shepherd and all all this kind of stuff that was really and and kennedy you know the the, the airplane yep. Yep. situation it was all it didn't seem it's the, the 90s don't seem like that fraught of a period in american history but it, it those were really quite the pivotal time in our history like the bill clinton scandal too yeah. you know yeah, there was all this. One thing that the documentary did well was like talk about what was going on at the time. What was the backdrop? Mm-hmm. You know, you see everything from, you know, the Columbine, uh, and so, you know, the Columbine event. And yeah. if you think about Woodstock '99, it sat between Columbine and the and Y2K. Right? There's all this right. Y2K anxiety. Yeah, and it's like the the idea that the apocalypse was nigh. And I don't know, man. Maybe. Um, Maybe the uh, bands that played at uh, Woodstock 99 inadvertently were like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) Everybody thought, you know, the world was ending a Y2K. So, you know, I don't know if like that, you know, that figured in, but certainly there was an anxiety there and all these things kind of add up. It's all like, it's like this powder keg, right? But, you know, culturally, if we're talking about music festivals, you know, Woodstock 99 is hardly the only music festival that has had, you know, sexual assault. It's hardly the only music festival that has had people dying at them. You know, you want to talk about these electronic dance music festivals that have gone on. I mean, every time they have one of those, like people die and Woodstock 99, of course, is maybe the most visible 
and certainly with For this sure. documentary. Um, and I believe Netflix is actually also doing a docu-series about Woodstock 99. I feel like oh, HBO no got out in front of them. So I think that we are not done with the visual horror of Woodstock oh, 99. <laughs> I oh, think there'll boy. be more to come. And okay. there's, you know, are we, if we're talking about ugly human behavior, um, toxic male behavior, this is not something that's limited to Woodstock 99. If we right. look throughout history, um, I think that there's examples of this everywhere you look. And I also think um, human nature never really changes at its core. Um, some people have called Woodstock 99 like a social experiment. And I think there's like some credence to that. I think if you did yeah. this at any time, you would get similar results. Yeah. You know, let's absolutely. see, you fence in, you know, 220,000, you know, people, most of whom are male, you know, in a hot place where they don't really have good access to water and sanitation or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you play aggressive music and fire them up. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? Right. Yep. It was the perfect storm. Yeah, it was absolutely a perfect storm, but it is fascinating to look at what was going on culturally. They do talk a lot about um, like the girls gone wild thing and how that was very prevalent at that time. And, yeah. you know, it was interesting to see uh, the movie American Pie brought up. Uh, yeah. You know, that had mm -hmm. come out like July, you know, it was like three weeks before Woodstock 99. So I was mm -hmm. like, was American Pie, was it even out by the time the festival happened? But it was like literally the same month. Um, it was a few, uh, it was like two or three weeks. Uh, it opened the Friday, you know, three weeks before the festival. And, yeah. you know, certainly you see, you know, the objectification of women and that kind of thing. And, uh, it, it was an interesting point that they made around that stuff. It's really food for thought. I mean, you, for sure. you know, you look at those movies like, okay, they're just kind of goofy, you know, teen sex comedies, but, you know, certainly I guess there were aspects of it that did reflect the culture at the time. And, yeah. you know, I'm not really ready to blame American pie for what happened at Woodstock 99. <laughs> yeah, the movie was only out for three weeks. I think right, it right. probably was maybe symptomatic and reflective of a larger culture and, for things sure. that were existing uh at the time but that definitely you know, parallels. You saw it. yeah dave holmes I, was one of the most i think one of the more interesting interviewees in this film um there were there were some great interviewees by the way that they got um yeah there were yeah and his his comment that he made um struck me because i it's something i hadn't really thought about until i watched this movie about american pie and about movies of that ilk how at the time, you know, we, we didn't think there was anything wrong with that at the time. Right. Like the Girls Gone Wild commercials were so ubiquitous on TV. I, yes. You know, I remember kind of being scandalized by them because like, oh, they can show that on TV. Yeah. It's crazy to think about it. They were just yeah. always on and it was usually like late at night, but it was like just right. the norm. You know, it was just like, right. oh, Girls Gone Wild. I mean, the commercials were on all the time. You're absolutely right. Mm hmm. And it's true, like, but at the, at the same time, while, while I was scandalized by them, at this, I, I wasn't consciously thinking of like, you know, oh, this is this is demeaning. You know what I mean? That yeah, just wasn't that wasn't part of my vocabulary at that time. Yeah. And, um, it, but yeah, looking at looking back on it, it's it's appalling. It's it's shocking. Like, I can't even imagine watching TV now. And if something like that came up, I would be I would be mortified. Yeah. You know, and it's just it's it's just an interesting dynamic yeah and you know human behavior and history I, you know human behavior 
I think is kind of one of those things when you talk about history repeats itself, you know, Josh, there's, there's so many examples, you know, and the older I get, the more I see patterns and, you know, I don't know, I'm not trying to oversimplify or get political here, but, you know, they're still lobbing missiles at each other in the Middle East. Um, You know, we're still seeing a lot of the same mistakes that have been made throughout history, you know, whether, whether it comes to like, you know, politics matters of like, you know, um, global diplomacy, or even just right here at home when we talk about, um, you know, are we educating our children? Are we, you know, feeding our poor? Are we housing our homeless? Um, you know, it's one of those things where if you want to really get down deep into kind of a philosophical conversation, you know, Woodstock 99 in this documentary is being singled out as this example of really bad behavior brought on by sort of this cause and effect. Right. Yeah. But if you look a little deeper, you know, you look at human behavior and human tendencies, I mean, you know, the capacity for humans to be awful to each other has never gone away. And I'm not sure I would love to think it will someday, and I would love to think that we'd become more civilized as a society. But, you know, we see the capacity um, for a mob mentality. You know, we just went through January 6th. We've gone through right. so many things. And I I think Woodstock 99 is like a microcosm. and It's an example of, you know, what, what results from greed, <laughs> number one, yeah, um, I think foremost this is what happens when greed wins this is what happens when greed is the number one uh priority um lang and share built this thing thought they could just like let it play out like they wound a watch and just let the watch you know unwind but i don't know where i'm going with this but i think you understand what i'm saying i think that you know um, i'm I'm not proud of you know my generational compatriots here, you know, these lunkheads that (laughs) assaulted women and, you know, burned the place down and threw pretzels out of the back of a semi, (laughs) you know, it was interesting that the documentary had this, uh, kid that went on camera and just said, yeah, it's like, I never thought I would be caught up like in a riot and do all these things, but you know, I was just stupid and, you know, he was just part of it. And I think you do get into that kind of mob mentality and you get into the groups. You, you can't underestimate the stupidity of people in groups, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Interesting side note, you know, Mary and I have been watching these old universal classic horror movies, right? So oh, you cool. think about yep. Frankenstein and the Frankenstein torch mob, right? I love it. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's just like that kind of thing. And what is it predicated on? It's, you know, predicated on, you know, fear, which is a strong emotion, fear being the great motivator, you know, certainly anger, the great motivator at Woodstock 99. Yep. You know, Moby said this thing, like, I think he played Saturday night, like in the rave hangar. Right. And he yes. was saying, you know, the atavistic part of your, my brain was just like, we have to get out of here. We were going to stay. We were like, no, no, we got to get out of here. And it's so funny because it's like, yeah, we said the same thing when we got up Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) That self-preservation kicked in. It's like, yeah, Yeah. this isn't, these aren't good conditions. Like this isn't fun anymore. We tried, man. We tried. We just wanted to have fun with our friends and we just wanted to go to this major happening. And, you know, it just, it collapsed before our eyes and as much, you know, you can't will something to happen if it's not going to happen. And, you know, 
with everything that I've learned in the years since, and, you know, when I watch a documentary like this, you know, realize how bad it was, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's crime that goes reported and then there's crime that goes unreported. So we don't know. Uh, We don't know the extent. We will never know how many women were assaulted. We will never know. Um, And that's a problem. We know a lot were, we, (laughs) you know, there were some official reports and it just, Mm -hmm. uh, it was like, you know, Sharon Lang, man, you let this happen. You let this happen. And I'm not saying that, you know, concert promoters that are putting on an event where there's like hundreds of thousands of people, like how do you police that many? But you created the conditions and the lawlessness. I mean, where was security? And there was just lack security, lack sanitation. And just, you know, you didn't give these people that came to your event any kind of uh, leg up to enjoy themselves, really. I mean, we tried and some claim they did. I mean, you know, I think it's that selective memory that they were talking about a little yeah. bit in the documentary. Yeah. You know, we, we, we idealize these things. And I think that goes for anything. Um, any event that takes place, let's say there's a hundred people there, everybody comes away with it with a different perspective. Um, everybody true. feels yeah. a little different. Right. But, and it's interesting too, cause I mean like Lang in particular, like you think, you know, third time's a charm. You had two other opportunities to get this right. And the third yeah. time is where you really blew it. <laughs> yeah. And as it turns out, like 94 seems like the one that's like, you know, uh, well, obviously 69 is, you know, the legendary event yeah. that, you know, is the, you know, the mothership of all these things. But sure. in terms of the modern version, you know, it's funny, you know, 94 reportedly kind of went pretty well, or at least his reputation was certainly much, much more, you know, much, much better than what stock 99s is in hindsight. Um, But yeah, and it's interesting if you think about the time, and this is talked about a little bit in this documentary when they're talking about like the rock scene in the early 90s, Um, the rock rock scene in the early 90s that kind of gave way to, you know, Woodstock 94 or whatever, or a lot of acts ended up on that bill. The Um, the grunge scene was. Yeah, the grunge scene. But, you know, Cobain was this guy that was pro-woman. Eddie Vedder was a guy that was pro-woman that, you know, they supported women and they were not very much not the kind of meatheads that we saw like in the new metal scene later. Right. Um, there was they were, actually, they were a, very sensitive and yeah, very... there was a consciousness. Yeah. Uh, there was a higher consciousness going on and even the beastie boys kind of recanted from their more lewd, yeah. um, you know, depictions of women and, you know, songs about women. I mean, they were playing at like the Tibetan freedom concerts and certainly, um, Adam Yauk was a guy that went through kind of, a you know, a rebirth of sorts spiritually. And I think that spilled over into the other members of the Beastie Boys as well. And I think they evolved. And then you had, you know, you had somebody like Cobain, somebody like Vetter, and then you had, um, you know, feminist like Mm -hmm. acts like Bikini Kill or what have you. Um, I think that it was just a different scene going on in the early nineties. And I think one of the things that gets, um, you know, talked about kind of regrettably is like what happened. Like we were kind of like, you know, the rock scene, like the biggest star in the rock scene was probably Cobain and Nirvana. Yeah. And there was just a different vibe. And then 
I think Moby was talking about this. It's like, you know, like REM was huge at that point. And, right. you know, you kind of had these, you know, deep thinkers and these sort of, you know, more sensitive um, artists that were out there right. contrasting that up against, you know, what we saw in terms of what get what the key takeaways musically are from Woodstock 99, which is kind of interesting because, you know, if you look at the list of acts that played, it's like everybody talks about Saturday night with Limp Bizkit, Rage, and Metallica, right? right? And if you look at the rest of the bill, you know, you do see names like Elvis Costello. You do see names like the Tragically Hip. You see right. the Counting Crows. You see Cheryl Crow. You see Jamiroquai and like things like that. It wasn't just this long, this nonstop seventy-two hours of heavy. It wasn't you know, all like Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock and yeah. <laughs> and right. it, it, that's what the programming was very strange. I mean, you have Kid Rock and then Wyclef Jean and then Counting Crows and right. <laughs> Just, I think this one of the strangest whiplashes. I think for me, you know, the tragically hip and then Kid Rock. I mean, I just can't so even weird. begin to recover from the whiplash of reading those two <laughs> names together. You know, I love the tragically hip, and you know, oh, one yeah, of the and you ask, you know, if the question is, did I enjoy myself? Well, you know, <laughs> not really, but right. um, we tried, and one of the one of the brighter points in a very dark weekend was watching the tragically hip on Saturday morning. You know, I was trying to, you know, get my, you know, brother and friend into them. They didn't quite dial into it, but they Uh, were happy to go and, you know, hang out with me while I watched them. And I'll just never forget. And you can watch the tragically hips Woodstock set on YouTube and musically uh in their performance. uh, You know, it's early Saturday. Things hadn't quite completely gone off the rails at Woodstock, although it was well on its way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a tremendous performance and there was a lot of Canadian flags out there. So I guess in, if you want to pick out, if you want to isolate one halfway decent moment, I'm not going to say it redeemed anything, Um, but the tragically hip set, was uh one of the one of the brighter spots for me that weekend but the fact that the tragically have played they just you know oh it's a big festival you know and there yeah. were a lot of other acts that were playing it and you know they're a working band they want a paid gig why not right right it probably didn't take them much to come down from canada right? <laughs> sure they, they were close enough yep <laughs> yeah so um that's one of the things. And of course, don't ask me why, but much like a train wreck, we did watch the Kid Rock set and that was was what it was. I, I'm sure it was. Yeah, <laughs> Got the crowd all fired up. And, uh-huh. you know, I love the comment that they make like he he struts out there in this white fur coat. Right. And it's like the haves <laughs> and the have nots. Meanwhile, we're it's out so here tacky. sunburned, starving, and there isn't a clean yeah. toilet in sight. Right. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> And then there were like the celebrities that they were getting to introduce people. And that was just plain weird. Yeah. Like Rosie Perez was in the movie. Right. For a second. Right. Yeah. Like she brought out DMX, I believe. And of course, everybody. Yeah. And uh, everybody, of course, is saying, quote, you know, show your tits, show your tits. Right. right? And, I, you know, she had like the best. response it's like go to blockbuster rent do the right thing 399 <laughs> yes <laughs> i love that <laughs> but you know any woman that got on the stage you know it's show us your tits and right. that was unfortunately the vibe and you know if you look at the um you know the bill they also talk about there's like one woman per each day so you, yeah <laughs> you know right, basically right, right. you know you have cheryl crow on friday 
Yeah. And you have Alanis Morissette on Saturday, mm-hmm. and then you had let's see, Jewel on Sunday. Jewel, that what a bizarre talk about another bizarre contrast. Yeah, you know, like wasn't it the Chili Peppers that followed Jewel? It was Creed, and then it was the Chili That's Peppers. That's right, Creed. I forgot about yeah. Creed. Yeah. And Creed bringing out Robbie Krieger, which, you know, poor Robbie (laughs) Krieger from The Doors. First of all, you know, The Doors didn't even play Woodstock and like these, you know, these lunkheads who were still there Sunday at eight, nine (laughs) o'clock, you know, or whatever, you know, they were the second to last to play. Like they could have not possibly cared about Robbie Krieger or The Doors. Right. Who are The Doors? My gosh. You know, that that ridiculous. Right, right. (laughs) We don't. We won't go there, but, um, you know, I, yeah. I will give props to Scott Stapp for, uh, you know, appearing in the documentary and talking at least. Um, yeah, yeah and, he and seemed pretty lucid. I know the sure. guy's gone through some, you know, pretty hardcore like substance abuse issues and, mm-hmm. you know, they were the first Nickelback, Josh. They really were. For sure. Um, yeah. You know, I would argue those... that at the time they were even bigger than Nickelback were. Yeah, it, yeah. You, you may you may have a point there. And in terms of like one of those bands that is just u- almost universally loathed. Right. But somehow still like st- stratospherically popular. Right. Sold sold millions, probably yeah. still selling quite a bit. The thing about yeah. Nickelback, too. You know, them being mm-hmm. Canadian. I, it's funny. They they hadn't come along yet, but I'm quite sure that Nickelback would have been on this bill, right? It, oh, sure. Just, yep. You know, I'm not saying they would have taken the gig. I don't want to speak for them, but it just seems right. like they would have been a band that would have fit right in. For sure. Yeah. One of the I, funnier things the singer from Nickelback says, he's he's got to have a sense of humor, right? And, you know, oh, you'd let's have just to. agree that, you know, he's he's done well for himself, right? He's yeah. not hurting. Um, but he's like, <laughs> we're like cilantro. You know, some people love us, some people hate us. <laughs> That's so great. That's so perfect. We were talking about Robbie Krieger showing up for his little cameo. Yeah, right. And um, that, that just made me think of that kind of like ridiculous montage in the movie where they're they're interviewing um, some of the some of the younger kids in, in attendance in Woodstock 99 asking him um, who played the national anthem at the original Woodstock and none of right. them knew who it was. And he's standing in front of this huge <laughs> yes. like poster that says Jimi Hendrix. I mean, right. that's comedic, but yeah. it also just underlines the point that this was a different generation and Woodstock was just a name. It didn't mean anything to them. Do you think the average attendee of Woodstock was like, yeah, this will be just like 69. I'm going to go live the, uh, you know, the same festival experience that my grandfather did. Right. It's not quite like that. Yeah. You know, or my parents or whatever, you know, there's a generational, uh, conversation to be had here too. And when I say like the baby boomers have failed generation X on many ways, and I'm not trying to point the finger to, you know, Right. Deflect responsibility for Generation X or someone like myself taking responsibility for our own lives. But, um, you know, Lang and Cher certainly, um, as baby boomers, failed Generation X and certainly some older uh, millennials, because certainly there were some millennials yeah. at Woodstock 99. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I feel like. You know, one of the greater points that was made when I rewatched the documentary today um, was, you know, the baby boomers narcissism and their self-regard. They're like handing this thing to the next generation here. This is something you should be doing. This (laughs) Woodstock thing is this wonderful heirloom that we want you to have and you should go have your own Woodstock. And it, it, it is a function of 
not only greed, but you know, there is like a narcissism there. If yeah. you think about Lang and Cher going out there, it's like, did we need Woodstock? Could we have just called it something else? Um, certainly other festivals have been created since then, but right. you know, did we need another Woodstock in 1999, maybe 94 would have been right. a good place to stop. And, you know, this thing, like this idea that generation X needed to have their own thing and it's being passed down by the baby boomers. It's like, well, did generation X necessarily ask for this? Right. Coachella was around the corner. Certainly a lot of other things were going on. The band fish was having all kinds of successful festivals. Yeah. I mean, you know, you needed to have, you know, to be a fan of them probably, but certainly there have been other you know, there were other events going on and other festivals. Lollapalooza had been out there, these oh, one right. day things. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, of course, Lollapalooza ended up being just a one, you know, a weekend now that's in one location, like in Chicago or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting to think, um, you know, Woodstock is just the product of these baby boomers thinking, you know, Gen X needed this. And another note I'll say it's interesting when everything we're talking about with Woodstock 99 and all the bad stuff that went down and Mm -hmm. the terrible vibe and everything that went down that was so toxic. You know, I was thinking about some of the things that I went to following Woodstock 99 and been to a lot of shows, a lot of festivals, a lot of like one day festivals, that kind of thing in my life. Mm -hmm. I remember in the year 2000, I went to an Ozfest in San Bernardino, California. (laughs) It was at a place called Blockbuster Pavilion. And Mm -hmm. I was doing some research today and I found a clip of uh, the band Pantera was playing. And Mm -hmm. I remember, did I ever have an experience that was quite like Woodstock 99? And nothing, of course, would compare to it remotely, right? Right. But there was one, there was this Ozfest that kind of sort of approached the bad vibe and like just Hmm. kind of the ickiness I felt it just kind of flashed me back a little bit. Interesting. And this was, you know, Ozfest 2000 and you know, this is a, it was a one day festival. You, it it was hot out. You just had all these hard rock and heavy metal fans um, drinking beer all day and just getting progressively more drunk. (laughs) And I just remember there being a vibe of really bad vibe and aggression in the crowd and, I remember this woman like bumped into some guy two, three rows behind me and the guy called her the C word and all this. And it was just this like ugly scene. And like the end of the day, I remember the sun was going down very ominously and the band Godsmack came on (laughs) and you know, they're playing. And again, I went to this as a journalist, I was covering it. Um, There's a photographer that I knew that was like taking pictures and, we went from Godsmack to Banterra to Ozzy Osbourne. And, Holy cow. you know, so it was kind of like, and I don't want to diss Ozfest. I mean, certainly as a festival, it's fine. But I just remember the audience vibe being pretty ugly, too. And I think, again, you mm. you look at human behavior and I mean, this kind of stuff isn't necessarily, you know, only this kind of thing didn't only just happen at Woodstock 99. This, this kind of stuff goes on all the time everywhere. Right. That's so interesting. <laughs> there's other, yeah. there's other yep. situations where this kind of uh, behavior can be, can be seen and heard. And right. I was so watching, 
this clip of this Pantera show that I was at. And this is like the, you know, they're like second to last before Ozzy came on. And Mm -hmm. it's this aggressive vibe, of course. And, you know, I, on a side note, I'm glad I saw Pantera, you know, they're a great band, but Mm -hmm. in the context of this all day festival, people were just, it was just getting really, really intense. And the vibe was so nasty, but I was watching Mm -hmm. this clip and, um, people were literally starting fires, just like they oh were at Woodstock God. 99, like out in the, uh, out on the lawn. And there's like female nudity. It was it, like, uh, you know, wow. it's just like crazy. It's like, there was like, it was, if mall, you know, if Woodstock 99 was this gigantic Molotov cocktail, like this mm. little slice of Ozfest, this one day thing was maybe a smaller bottle that had a, it was like a smaller Molotov cocktail, but it was still a Molotov cocktail. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was yeah. like this um, same kind of behavior. And again, I go back to this thought that like human behavior is human behavior. And if you put humans yeah. in certain situations with alcohol, heat, yeah. and just aggressive music, this kind of thing just sort of happens. We just, it, we just turn primal just yeah. by instinct, you know? Yeah, so but it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it it felt like a microcosm of Woodstock '99, but at the same time, it was kind of like the same thing. I was watching this clip today. It's like I'd forgotten. Like, oh my god, they had did start fires on the lawn at this wow. Ozfest. I'd almost forgot about that. And it, this is like a year later. Um, That's so. Crazy. Yeah, it was uh, it just I, something that it, struck me. Yeah, and I guess it goes to show too, like. Woodstock 99 had the un- almost kind of unfortunate um, fate of having that Woodstock label branded on them, which immediately gave them all this publicity because Woodstock is such a, um, you know, such an American treasure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And well, it certainly became publicity. a brand. Sure. Absolutely. And you I know, think that's probably yeah. why it's so remembered now versus, you know, like, like that Ozfest, which was very similar, but didn't have the same, you know. Still. Yeah. And I'll, I'll send you the link. I mean, not that because okay. you'll actually mm-hmm. enjoy watching it, but just mm-hmm. for, you know, so you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be fascinated by that. That's crazy that, it, but it proves your point. One thing that I've been wondering as we, as we've been talking about this, I know you, you, you went to the festival as a, as a journalist and kind of with that, with that, um, like through that lens, I'm just curious. Did you did you manage to to do any coverage of the of the festival? Like, and yeah. if you did, like, what did it um, entail? Was it like reviews? Was it interviews? Like, what what did it? What so kind, basically, kind of what I, what I ended up doing was like a full page, like just story on the overall event for the paper mm-hmm. I worked at. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember me. I remember it being just you know a very. Uh, I guess tentative piece that I wrote about, okay, I went to this thing. We saw a lot of cool acts, but wow, were the conditions horrible. And if they ever do this again, they can't do this the same way. Um, I think I was able to isolate, you know, some of the things like, you know, like I said, we tried to have fun. We tried to like enjoy the backs and, you know, some of the musical performances, like let's say you could, if you could sift out, and separate out like that tragically hip set or even hell the Metallica set that, you know, musically it was fine. Um, there were shows that, you know, were, were fine. If you took the corn set out of that context, I mean, if you just watch them perform, it's like, it's a hell of a performance. Yeah. 
but I think it was it was I, it was a mixed review to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it, I'm sure even a couple of weeks after when I wrote it, it um, you know, it probably reflected my ambivalence. Um, and even at that point, I'm not sure I knew the depth of everything that had happened. I mean, I think I even learned a lot even watching this documentary right. and diving back into just how bad everything was. But I imagine when you're kind of in the, in the throes of it, it's a fight or flight instinct. You're, you're on survival yeah. mode. So you're kind of only, you're hyper-focused on just like, you know, making sure I, you know, just get by you know, minute by minute and you don't really get like the full, the full sense of what's, you know, the extent of what's happening around you. Yeah. And I, I think I, I was, anyway. I think my mind was so blown and I was just like writing about like, you know, the whole scene, you know, and a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about, but I remember like, you know, reporting on the craziness because after Woods, I'm sorry, after Metallica played Saturday night, you know, there was this huge fireworks display. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, July 4th level in some average city in the USA. So I was like, okay, that was pretty damn cool. And, right, you know, that was all right. And we're walking back, heading to the tent. And, you know, we walked, we had to walk by that, you know, hangar where they had like, you know, the rave going on and all the DJs and everything. And I'll never forget this, Josh. I just like, there mm. was like a couple, you know, engaging in a sex act right in front of like oh the entrance to like this rave hangar. And it was like just out in the open. And I mean, I'm sure they were both <laughs> flying on Molly, but I mean, this is, these were the kind of sights that you were seeing as you walked around. I mean, much was made wow, just... in the documentary about, you know, the obviously there was just nudity all over the place, but right. um, we were just walking back. It's like, wow, okay, yeah, that Metallica show was good. And how about those fireworks? Like, oops, oh, wow, there's a couple having <laughs> sexual relations in front of everybody. <laughs> so it was just, it was, uh, there was a lawlessness to it. And yeah. there was certainly a lot of like destruction. And mm -hmm. like I said, when we got up Sunday morning, you know, we decided we were going to leave and like people were kicking down the walls. You could see things were just breaking down and that the walls were coming down. Mm -hmm. And it was like we're driving out and people are knocking over these wooden plywood walls that were meant to keep people out. Right. And yeah, we were just relieved that we were um getting out of there. Um, I remember watching the coverage on CNN. Um, you know, I went back to my dad's house and I was never so happy to have a shower. Let me tell you. Oh, that, yeah, um, I would have been sitting in the shower for like an hour. Just yeah, like letting the water wash over me. And yeah. And yet I still didn't feel clean, Josh. I still didn't feel clean. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Speaking of showers, I'll give you, you know, I'll share with you the details. One of the things that you want to oh, talk boy. about, like flashbacks and having PTSD from oh, no. something that, you know, I did Saturday morning, you know, I don't know. I'm a pretty clean guy. I like to have a mm -hmm. shower in the morning, you know, like most people and me and my buddy, Chris, you know, we, we tried to use the showers that they had set up and they talk about this Ooh. in the documentary. Those they were just these brutal. crude, like tents that had like tarps like hung and like you had to pull the string to get the water to flow but the grossest thing was that yeah you were wading through like ankle or shin deep water as <sighs> there was no drainage so yeah i took a shower at woodstock 99 and i lived to tell about it wow you and like there were no shelves you want to talk about just the little things right the details right, right? attention to detail <laughs> um 
there's no shelves to put your shampoo and your soap. So you're holding everything. You're trying to shower. It's like, why bother, man? Why bother? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we can go like two days without bathing. Everybody else is going to stink. What's the sewage breaks? Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what I was getting all like, you know, cleaned up and smelling nice for. I really don't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just trying to scrub the previous day off of you. Right. Yeah. But just, yeah, I had that experience firsthand. And it's like the the prospect too when we got up Sunday morning. It's like, do I really want to take a shower at that place again? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> but at least you have a. I mean, you have a story now. I have several stories. That, yeah, that is for sure. That, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And it you know it just it, it was during that that part in the movie when they were showing the showers when they it cut to the guy from Offspring, who, yeah. who made that comment like, yeah, we played in the in a venue that Hitler. Um, and the Nazis built, right? And it was, and the, the conditions were better than the conditions at Woodstock. Right? Guy. Yeah, it was more welcoming than yes. Griffiths Air Force Base. Yeah. Yes. Unreal. Yeah, I mean, you know, Cher and Lang, I think they liked this place because it had all the infrastructure, and they were able mm-hmm. to secure it, and people wouldn't gate crash, and you know, therefore they could sell more tickets and make more money. Good for them. Um, yeah. But man, you want to talk about the wrong venue? Um, mm-hmm. you know, one of these super fun sites that they had to do an environmental cleanup of. And, you know, I guess when this airbase closed down, I guess Rome, New York fell on hard times economically. It's like a factory shutting down. Right. Oh, and like yeah. their economy tanked and, you know, the other clown in this thing, and, you know, maybe he's a nice guy and was just trying to do the right thing. But that mayor of Rome, New York, I just, mm-hmm. I don't know when yeah. he was like, He's like, yeah, we're just hanging out with Puff here, you know, talking about Puffy, right? right. Like, like, you know, like he fits right in. Like, yeah, I'm sure you're going to the VIP table and drinking champagne with Puff later. Of course. But, right. Right. <laughs> just putting and, on airs. Yeah. And they were talking about, uh, you know, he was like talking to Kiedis and trying to tell him to like try to calm the crowd down. And like that just mm-hmm. at that point, it was too late anyway. Right. And. You know, some points are made in the documentary, too. It's like, you know, it's a little bit too easy to blame the artists because it was really, you know, on the promoters and on everything that they set up that failed. Um, right. it, it, a lot of it's on their shoulders. You know, Cher loves to bring, you know, you know, John Cher loves to, you know, blame Fred Durst. And look, you know, Fred Durst is certainly no innocent and complicit in firing the crowd up. And he right. got out there and surfed on plywood. I remember seeing it happen. And it's like, yeah, this is just some crazy crazy stuff but you can't just put it on Durst's shoulders you know and it's crazy too you think about it they were the most popular band at the time probably in america you know limp biscuit could not have been a bigger band and uh it's interesting when they talk about MTV and like the TRL stuff, how all these things coexisted next to each other like you would have a video by like britney spears or um, the Backstreet Boys are in sync, and then that would be right up against videos by like Limp Biscuit or Kid Rock. Right. And it's like so it was crazy. just this wild mix of stuff. And yeah. it was almost like um, all these Gen X bros, little sisters were starting to take over with their musical tastes. Yeah, and, that's um, true. It was just a weird mix of what was popular. And of course, you saw the thing where Carson Daly went out there and people recognized him and they started whipping stuff at him because they yeah. just they associated Carson Daly with this teen pop that right. they weren't into. Although at the same time, Carson was out there with Fred Durst and introducing Limp Biscuit. you know, um, yeah. 
the other interesting point I think that was made in the documentary too, like, you know, in a way, and strangely it comes from the promoter. <laughs> I think it was Lang. who saw that like this became like an MTV spring break type thing. You know, it became, yes. it was very yep. much like a collegiate frat party that went wrong, but you know, I'm not That's sure true. it's a good idea for a frat party to last for three days. Right. Right. <laughs> he's right though i can totally see that because that was all i remember the spring break shows every year every april would come on and yeah it was just like total anarchy and insanity but but those lasted i feel like those did last a long time i don't know i could be wrong but yeah well i'm just saying a frat party in general Oh, should right, run right, for right. three days straight, right? That's, we see what happens. For sure. It's not good for anybody. No. But yeah, the MTV <laughs> spring break thing. I, one of the things I remember, like, I think it was like MTV, like had a beach house. And I don't know if it was like a spring break thing. It probably was. But mm-hmm. I knew if you remember Radiohead playing at that, like in the oh, sunlight. Wow. And, you know, that's that's one of those more interesting things. But right, right. Getting off track a little bit. But no, that's fine. I often think about the late 90s and and I'm like, that has to have been one of the weakest eras of rock music that I can think of. Yeah, it's it's interesting where it was going. I mean, and look, you know, there's always great stuff going on if you look for it, right? Right. Um, certainly, there were great bands and you know, good stuff. Um, but uh, you know, what is in the what you know, what is super popular? What's in the zeitgeist? And what was MTV really? pushing you know in their trl format and since mtv was broadcasting the woodstock 99 thing as like a pay-per-view and all this um i feel like it was a lot of like the mtv acts you know with exception of the teen pop because that wouldn't have fit in with this programming at all but you're right you know the late 90s i mean it's interesting that was the time that i was a music journalist when i was uh yeah, I really caught the tail end, just the pre Napster. Like mm-hmm. I would, you know, record labels and publicists would actually still send me CDs. And then I saw the point where they wouldn't even send you the CDs because they were afraid of them leaking and getting out there oh, and right. being stolen as MB3s. And there would be a thing where you could go to like the record label office and listen to an album and write a review. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But in terms of the scene, it, you know, it's. You know, that's a tough thing. I mean, I think uh, certainly you had artists like the Tragically Hip making brilliant music. You had, you know, there were quality artists out there doing quality music. I mean, certainly, you know, Cobain was gone. Um, Pearl Jam was certainly making some great music. And there were just there's tons of artists making great music. But, you know, the late 90s does if you think about what is the prevailing memory? You know, you see Fred Durst's face, right? <laughs> right. Sadly. Because I was thinking too, like they must have done a really good job. I think they didn't do a good job of very many things in this, but I, but during the festival, they must have done a, a pretty good job of, of shielding a lot of what was happening in the crowd. Cause I feel like it had the art had more artists been more aware of just how bad it really was. You would think that maybe somebody one of them would have like intervened or said something right because i'm just thinking about like in in the original woodstock um you know there's that moment where the the grateful dead were going to play and 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 they you know they shoot jerry garcia and he's like oh no we're not playing because they they guess because the the crowd was getting unruly or something like that so they 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 ended up leaving and not performing yeah 
and I'm surprised there there wasn't any of that, or they must have done a good job just keeping that away from the artists. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, the communication, you wonder how that works, and I don't know. Bands are you know artists are contractually obligated to play a gig, and mm, true. Um, you know I I think things just move so fast. But yeah, you would think that like Alanis would have called, uh, you know maybe uh, you know. Willie Nelson said, dude, don't go to this thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, You know, who knows who talks to who, you know, (laughs) artists are very, you know, they they all live in their bubbles and they're all just showing up with their, you know, in their private vehicles or their helicoptering in or whatever it is they're doing, Mm -hmm. coming in their private bus, they go out, they play a show and they're done. You know, most of these acts were playing an hour, hour and a half. Um, Even Metallica played like just like 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a great point. You would have thought it's like, geez, don't go in there. It's terrible. Right. <laughs> Could they have warned? Um, you know, and that's the other point I think too. I think if there had been, um, I think if there had been like uh smartphones, I, I think that Woodstock 99 would have probably been shut down or things yeah. would have gone. I think right. people would have seen what, what the reality was on the ground. And I, you might've had artists pulling out and said, you know what? I'm not going out there. I'm not going to fire up this crowd anymore. Right. You know, right. you just, I mean, they were trying to tell the chili peppers like, Hey, can you go calm it down? And you know, mm-hmm. I think they just said, screw it. It was already a mess and it was the end of it. So they figured, well, we're the last band to play anyway, uh, not right. to justify any of it or, you know, forgive it. It's just, uh, but yeah, I, it, it just, it really makes you wonder. I was processing how you said that it really kind of brought you right back into it. Like the, the footage was so vivid and so, um, potent that it really affected you and it made you feel like you would re re-experiencing it in a lot of ways. And I, I think that really speaks to how powerful this, this film is. Yeah, I think it's really well done. I mean, I I think it covered um, a good bit of material and I think it kind of, you know, look, it's not a it's not a puff piece. It's certainly, you know, telling it like it is, you know, you know, you can make an argument. Is it lingering a little too long on, you know, some of the female nudity? Are we like overemphasizing that? Are we showing that a little more than maybe, you know, I did, you know, these creative decisions could be, you know, uh, challenged, I guess. Sure. but in terms of depicting and showing uh, what was happening at this thing and what went down, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty vivid and, you know, I don't want to be dramatic and say, yeah, it re-traumatized me. I mean, it certainly, I had flashbacks and it took me and just even seeing things like the food stands, like you just remember, like, you don't remember what those things look like, but then when you see them again, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. I remember that. I remember yeah. that site. I remember what that building looked like. I remember, like what these artists looked like when they were on the stage. I mean, you know, we were, you know, never super close to the stages. We were watching things on the big video screens and got as close as we could. But, mm-hmm. you know, on that level, mm-hmm. you know, it did bring me back into it. And especially when they were showing like, you know, the porta potties and just all the mess. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, so it was vivid in that way. And I, I think, uh, the documentary did a really, really solid job of kind of maybe showing people who are of a different generation or who don't know a lot about Woodstock 99 and how lucky were they 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) The less you know, the better probably. But, um, you know, in terms of depicting it, I'll be interested to see if this Netflix thing is actually going to happen. Um, This docuseries that they're allegedly working on, I think it was supposed to be several different episodes. Um, So it'll be interesting to see. Because you remember when there were two Firefest documentaries? I think there was one like on Netflix and one on Hulu. So I think there may be more uh, Woodstock 99 to come um, in the, on the documentary front. So it'll be interesting to see if that um, ends up coming out. I think it's supposed to, I believe it's in development. It's interesting. There was this article that came out on Vulture just today about this documentary. And um, basically the angle of it is like, it, it felt like the Woodstock 99 documentary probably could have had a little bit more context, you know, uh-huh. cause it points at like other music festivals it actually goes, uh, you know, it talks about, it's like, yeah, everybody, you know, slaps this negative connotation on new metal, but there were actually some really good new metal bands that didn't play mm-hmm. Woodstock. I mean, if you talk about right. like a band like the Deftones or System of a Down and, oh sure, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about music around the late nineties and I think, uh, there's just a, there there's a lot of different like critical takes on the documentary and uh this Walter article was pretty interesting and you know it also kind of makes the point it's like you know Woodstock 99 certainly didn't like you know corner the market on bad concert behavior um they talk about you know there have been incidents of like sexual assault at Coachella it has happened yeah and um it's kind of back to some of the points I was making, you know, Woodstock 99 is like not the only time like bad stuff has happened when a mass of humanity has gotten together. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, but certainly right now, especially it's very visible and it's it certainly, it's a fascinating, uh, slice of American history and like what can yeah. go wrong when the right elements are, you know, put into a powder keg. Yeah, and when the right, you know, when the per, when you said like the perfect storm, you know, when all these elements are kind of put together, like what can happen, right? And um, you know, we uh, we have a long ways to go as humans. We have a long way to go um, in society, certainly. Um, you know, we're very divided in this country right now. Obviously, um, yeah. there's a lot of divisions politically around vaccines um, and coming out of this pandemic that feels like it's never going to end. And Mm -hmm. we all so desperately want to get back to normal because we want to go and have the good times that I was trying to chase after when I went to Woodstock 99. And we all want to go and try to live our lives and, you know, have some semblance of normal and, um, I hope we get there. And, you know, unfortunately Woodstock 99, um, you know, uh, sadly represents, um, I I don't want to say it was just a few bad apples because it really was more than a few bad apples. But like I said, Josh, I think a vast majority of people that went were just trying to have a good time and they were normal and they weren't causing trouble. Um, So there's another story to be told. There are multiple stories to be told here. You know, of course, um, we should focus on, you know, David DeRoja's um, unfortunate death and what, you know, what can happen um, when the when you get a situation like this where promoters don't care and, um, you know, there isn't enough security and, you know, people are just going and trying to have a good time. Like, you know, 
things can go horribly, horribly wrong. And they did. And at the same time, I do think that there were people that tried to go to this event and just have fun with their friends. And it was a very innocent thing. And I count myself and my friends among them. I, mm-hmm. um, I look back at Woodstock 99 as just an epic failure. Um, it feels like something we were suckered into. It looked a heck of a lot better on the outside in advance of it than it did when we were, um, the real, when we got there and we saw the reality, you know, anything that they depicted in the documentary and talk about like, yeah, I mean, you know, we need to take a look at this and, you know, people should know about it, but I don't think it's necessarily the only story. I think there's, um, there, there's probably a seven part documentary you could do about Woodstock 99 and maybe talk to some other people. You know, I would love Mm -hmm. to get like some in-depth interviews with some of the artists and like, what was going through your head? Did it, like you said, did it occur to you to maybe call up some friend to call up some of the other artists or let them know like, yeah, man, maybe you shouldn't play this thing. Um, this, it all just happened so fast. And that would be the end, you know, in the end Rome burned down and, you know, Lang and Cher were fiddling while Rome burned. Yep. I could just see them sitting in their and sitting on their thrones, you know, counting their dollar bills while everything around them is in flames, you know, then they're completely yeah. oblivious to that. Like that's just the image I have in my head, you know. And Yeah, it, it really makes you wonder, did they take like a helicopter back to some luxury hotel somewhere? Were they even there? Yeah. What's hilarious is <laughs> one of the most absurd things, and I know they probably had to do this legally or whatever, just for accountability, like they couldn't just run away, you know, like the wizard, <laughs> you know, the Wizard of Oz escaping in a hot air balloon, you know. <laughs> right, right. Like they had to kind of stay there and answer. But it was like they're having this press conference at 430 in the morning on Monday. Yeah. And it's like at that point, what is there to say? Right, right. <laughs> you know, the things burned down. There's hundreds of state police. And like, you know, at this point, what do you say? You know, it was just it was almost kind of like in a strange kind of roundabout way. It was almost comedic that they were doing a press conference at like 430 in the morning on the Monday after. <laughs> it's true. And they were still trying to like dodge, you know responsibility yeah. nothing to see here right, right. oh everybody's guys. having a blast everybody's having a great time right. <laughs> you know and they were selling that into the tent yeah <laughs> and lang was like oh it's two-thirds of a mile the walk between stages like bullshit dude it was almost two miles i mean he was straight up lying wow he was straight up lying and you know that's just where it's like this guy should not be allowed to ever run a festival again Right, right. They shouldn't even let him like run a Seven Eleven. Frankly, <laughs> it's just like I said, shame on you, Michael Lang. Like you should know better. You've done this twice. You yeah, know? like exactly. You've, you've run. You founded the most like <laughs> legendary and important music festival in history. Like shame on you for this. There's yeah. no. There's no excuse. You would just think older and wiser. You've you've run two of these major festivals with hundreds of thousands. I'm not saying that's easy. It's it can't be, but right. Um, but certainly, it's not your first rodeo. No, exactly. <laughs> and you know, certainly he had every resource at his disposal. And like I said, I think they could have made some adjustments to improve life for people along the way, and they didn't. Yeah, yeah. And they could have. You know, um, you're literally watching this 
ship sink mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and it's you're like not Titanic. doing anything about it. And yeah. um, that is the most unforgivable thing. And it's just, it's amazing seeing these press conferences and just seeing it just kind of made me angry again, just over, you know, what they let happen. And not only did they let it happen, they were just um, indignant about it and just didn't really seem to acknowledge or accept that this thing was going so badly right and even the guy that complained about litter like they took just grave offense at it's like well maybe you should get your sanitation people out there and clean up the place you know right like that should be just a basic 101 yeah if you're not getting that right what else is you know right you're not getting anything else right and i can tell you as someone who was there they got nothing right i mean you know the stage and the sound and the, the, you know, the satellite uplink. So this thing could be on pay-per-view like that. My brother made this point here. It is. You have this state of the art sound and staging and lights and, you know, the pay-per-view is being filmed, but they didn't take any of that same level of thought and financing and money to make the experience acceptable for people that went. Right. That's, that's insane. It really was. And, you know, I look back on it, you know, with this sort of like just shaking my head. It's like, yeah, we did that, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just I have such mixed and conflicted feelings about it. And, you know, watching the documentary, you know, it took me back. And I'm not going to say that's a good thing, but I maybe gained a little bit more insight and perspective because there were things that you know, obviously when you were there, you had no idea of, and then over the years, you know, and in the aftermath of it, you learn, but learning just how bad everything was and what happened, you know, there was a gang rape during the corn set. Like, you don't just, we had no idea. We had no idea at the time. And we're, we're just trying to, you know, go to this event and have fun with our friends. And, you know, that was, you know, that was hard to, that was hard for me to like, uh, you know, come to terms with in a way as I watch this, like, you know, I'm out there rocking out to corn and like, there's this awful thing, but you know, you don't know these things are going on. Right. Especially when you're in in, in an ocean of hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, exactly. What can I say? It was uh, generation X's Woodstock. Um, I don't know that we got the Woodstock we deserved. It's just, it's very tragic. It, it's, I, I, I find it to be really tragic Yeah, because it was, it, it was completely avoidable. It, yeah. I, I, I feel that it really, well, yeah, avoidable. foreseeable and avoidable. Yeah. I think that those yeah. are the two key words. I think someone said it in the documentary. I mean, these, these problems you could have foreseen, you could have seen this. Yeah. And my thing is, man, think about a sports team. Think about a football team that goes out and plays like, let's say, a team goes out and plays the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say the game plan isn't going well and Tom Brady's beating you 56 to nothing. Do you change your game plan up? Do you change the game plan? You're going out there, you're getting creamed. You're not putting any points on the board and you're not changing your game plan. And that's what those guys had to, should have done. And they didn't. Yeah. It's like, we know, uh, we know what doesn't, we know what's not working. Yeah. So let's keep doing it. Yeah. It's kind of exactly, you know, we're not, we're not going to even address the problem. We're just going to like, are we just throwing this fight? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, um, it's hard to understand. I, I don't know yeah. what happened there. You, I, you know, I have to say if anybody who's listening has not gotten around to seeing this movie yet, um, or has any interest in it and hasn't seen it, I don't, 
don't hesitate. It's very, it's riveting. It's, it's harrowing. It's, it's, um, fascinating. It's educational. It's educational. And it's, it's, I think it's very well done. I, I uh, went down a little bit of a spiral looking at IMDb reviews on this movie. And I was, I, I clicked out of it a little bit irate because a lot of them are quite negative actually. And, and people were yeah. saying that they were, you know, kind of focusing on the wrong aspects of the festival. And I, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I feel like a lot yeah. of the people who are critical of the film, I don't know. We're well, not constructive in it. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, I know what you mean. I mean, yeah. the, you know, the overriding narrative of the story has to be the negative aspects of it, right? Yeah. It has to be the assaults of the women. It has to be the violence, the looting, the fires. I mean, I don't know that there is any other type of narrative. I mean, in our conversation, I can isolate out as someone who was there. Okay, these things happened. We tried to watch this band and have a good time. But yeah, mm-hmm. you know, historically and in perspective, <laughs> right? I think you kind of have to like accept um, that the narrative really has to include, you know, all that violence and bad stuff because otherwise um, you're just glossing over it. Yeah. And, yes, and, sure. And some people went it. and maybe yeah. had a good time, you know, oblivious to everything else that was going on. But, right. um, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it was well done, but it, it, nobody's going to say it's easy to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you kind of, you know, like you kind of said, you can't delegitimize people's, um, you know, the suffering, right. <laughs> there is a lot of suffering that went on there and, and to, yeah. and to ignore that or, or to not at least at the very least acknowledge it would be an insult and would be just inhuman, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely, you know, to anybody listening who has not seen it, and is interested like by by all means see it as soon as possible thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all these experiences and and, and offering so much amazing insight um of course and it's and it's really you know like you like you said it definitely put a lot of what i saw in the film in perspective and and um kind of confirmed everything that i've a lot of my suspicions about you know um everything that happened so um it, this was this was really a fantastic conversation, and I'm um, I'm hoping that everybody who listens will will get a lot out of this, and I because I, I know I certainly did. So. Well, thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate that, and it's been a pleasure and a privilege to uh, come onto the podcast. And oh, uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, you're 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 welcome anytime. My my the pleasure is all mine. Um, so be, before we go, um. I wanted to, to um, just have you do a little bit of, of promo of where we can find you. I know we talked about a little bit in the beginning, but just, just to wrap up, where, where can um, the listeners find you out in inter- internet land? <laughs> of course. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Erocracy, and that's E-R-O-C-K-R-A-C-Y. Um, you can find my blog, and that's e-rocracy.com. And if you're looking for Hall Watchers, that's just at Hall Watchers on Twitter. And you can find our podcast anywhere you pod, basically. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. And it's, I again, it has a high recommendation for me. It's a, it's a fantastic show. And um, for me, you can find the show Twitter handle at uh, Rock Movies Pod. Uh, the email address is movies at rockpod at gmail.com. I also have a, a personal Twitter handle at joshf618. And uh, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or Apple. I guess it's, I'm sorry. I should say Apple Podcasts now. It's changed. Positive or negative. It's all good. <laughs> I like honest feedback. So um, 
if you if listeners would do that that'd be greatly appreciated and um once again eric uh thank you so much for coming on here and you have a good night and i'm gonna you're welcome you too thank you are you